starting a new series today. Speaking of non-controversial series, we're going to be talking about the book of Revelation. Uh, Speaking of fire from heaven, we're going to be talking about the book of Revelation. And so uh, here's how the Grace Family of Churches, we're a family of churches. You've got 10 different churches spread out all over the country. Uh, And over the summer, one of the things that we do that's really helpful is we do a sermon series all together. So all the family churches do the same teaching series. Um, What will happen over the next seven weeks is we'll talk about the seven churches of Revelation. Each week you'll have a different pastor from the Grace family that will be a part of it. So we've got a few guests that are going to be there. Uh, Myself and Douglas are going to be teaching. Meredith Bennett, our our student next generation pastor, is going to be bringing a word for one of them. And we're going to dive into this kind of over the next uh, seven, eight, eight weeks uh, together. And, and I've been excited about teaching these passages this summer because uh, I'm excited about God's Word. Because I love God's Word. Because I believe there's something really important in these passages. Because I believe every bit of God's Word, every bit of the Bible from front to back is useful and helpful for us. I believe every word in here matters to us today. I believe we need this book. But I've been concerned about teaching this series because we don't need this in the way that we want it. Sometimes what we want is not what we need. And sometimes what we want from God's word is not what we get from God's word. And I don't know that there's ever been a chapter that is more debated or more confused or has been surrounded by such poor teaching throughout the history of the church than the book of Revelation. Because Revelation is a perfect example of this idea. The Bible was written for us, but it was not written to us. The Bible was written for us, but it was not written to us. And people get excited when we talk about Revelation. Notice there's no S on the end of that. It's one revelation. It's one revelation. But they get excited about the book of Revelation for all the wrong reasons. Uh, Because we believe the Bible was written to us. Our time. It was written to our place. But I I hate to mention this, guys, but nowhere in this book is America. Nowhere. It's just not there. I don't don't know. We need to clap about it. It's just not in there, right? Like, there's lots of places that aren't in there. Uh, France isn't either, right? But, like, like it's just, it, it was written for a specific time and a specific place and a specific people going through specific challenges and specific issues. Now, because it wasn't written to us does not mean it's not written for us. We can benefit from learning from other contexts. We can benefit from learning from other places. We can benefit from learning from what was going on in the midst of this time and this place. And it's hugely applicable to us. So what we see when we read the book of Revelation is it was meant to be a book that breeds courage for the church in the middle of enormous persecution. But what it's turned into is a book that is about crazy predictions about the end times. Right? So what was meant to grow the courage of the seven churches in Asia Minor has turned into crazy stuff. And and I love you, church. I love you very, very much. But in the book of Revelation, the locusts here are not missiles from China. I love you. They're not. There's no no mention of Apache helicopters or cruise missiles or whatever military thing you want to come up with. It's just not there. There's no mention of Vladimir Putin. There's no mention of your favorite or least favorite president of all time. They're not mentioned there. 
Nicholas Cage and Kirk Cameron are not the best ones to interpret the book of Revelation for us. Can I get an amen? Uh, the, uh, the mark of the beast, guys, is not a vaccine. It's just not. This book was written for us, but it wasn't written to us. Because that would be weird. Right, so yesterday we did my son's graduation party here. We had, it's a benefit of being a pastor. We had a place to do it, right? And we, did, we did it right here in this pavilion. And right here, right, sitting right here was a table where we had encouragement notes. And we just asked all of our friends and family and spiritual leaders and people from the church who were here just to write him an encouragement note. Write him a prayer. Write him something to encourage him. How weird would it have been if somebody from our church family was, wrote something to him and was like, I'm not actually writing this to you. I'm writing this to your great, 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 great grandparent or grandchildren who are going to live in a different place and a different time. But here's this letter. That's weird, right? That's how we read the Bible, though, sometimes. It was written like this is a pastor writing to his churches. This is a pastor writing to his churches in Asia Minor, in a specific time, and in a specific place, and he wasn't writing these letters with America in mind, guys. These writings don't have deep meaning for us, and we can learn from these churches in other places, and we can learn from what was going on in Asia Minor at this time. The word revelation actually means to uncover or to draw back. It's actually really beautiful. It's this idea that here's what God's doing in this book. He's unveiling. He's unveiling his plan. He's unveiling his purposes. He's unveiling what's going to happen in the world and in the church in a really, really beautiful way. It's like when you have little kids. Parents, when you have little kids and they're just, you just know that Christmas morning is going to be so amazing and you're setting up some stuff. I don't want to give some things away, but you're setting up some stuff. You're getting ready. And the kids, you know they're super hyped about it. And so you're ready and you're so excited about the unveiling that's going to happen when the kids walk downstairs that morning. Uh, uh, husbands, it's like when you planned this amazing getaway weekend for your wife and she doesn't know what's going on. And you're going to surprise her with it. And you're just fired up because it's going to be this unveiling. And, and it's going to be wonderful. And it's going to be great. This is what it's talking about. There's an uncovering. There's an unveiling of something beautiful that's going to happen. And, and here's the thing. The, the unveiling is not surprise torture devices that are going to come out in Marietta. I know that some of us have read, Mary, er, read Revelation that way. But it's more like, <coughs> I want to unveil the plan so that you can have courage today. I want to remind you that I'm good and that I'm coming back and that I actually win and that the church is not this thing that is stoppable, that is small, that is shaken by culture, that is destroyed by team whatever and team whatever. The church is the church of Jesus Christ. And no matter what was happening in Asia Minor at that time or what happened in America in 2020, 20, I can keep saying 20s, the church is unmovable. It's unshakable. Revelation chapter 1, verse 1. The revelation from Jesus Christ. Who's it from? Jesus. Who's it about? Jesus Christ. Thank you, Douglas. <laughs> the revelation from Jesus Christ. Right? We should get excited about revelations from Jesus. The revelation from Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants what must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant, John. So the revelation is about Jesus. It was sent to John. 
who testifies to everything he saw. That is the word of God, the testimony of Jesus Christ. And then listen to this, verse 3. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear it and take heart to what is written in it, because the time is near. That's us. Blessed is the one who reads it aloud. I'm doing that right now. Blessed is the one who hears it. You're doing it right now. Blessed is the one who, oh, wait a minute, takes heart what is written. The first two of those things are already happening. The second one we'll see. Or the third one we'll see. Will we take heart what's actually written here? That's why we're teaching it. That's why we're talking about it. That's why we're going through all this material. It's because it's actually meant for us to take it to heart and to pay attention to it. And then it ends by saying, John, to the seven churches in the province of Asia. Uh, the author of Revelation is John. Uh, this is the disciple who Jesus loved. Uh, and, and he's been exiled and imprisoned on this island of Patmos. Uh, and this, is, this is during the time of the emperor Domitian. Domitian was a terrible dude. Right? So what happens around 60, 50 AD is there is a string of emperors in Rome who hate Christians. And the persecution of Christians just grows and grows and grows to where it's absolutely disgusting what was happening to Christians at that time. Each of these seven churches that he's writing to were probably about a day or two days walk from each other. And he was their pastor. And as they took these walks back and forth, this is, in, this is all in Turkey now. And all of this stuff has been unearthed. We can find, we can tell you exactly where these places all were. You could go to those sites today and experience them. Uh, the genre of the letter is that it's prophetic. It's a prophetic letter. It's about a revelation that Jesus is actually giving us. And so prophecy is not only a designed prediction of the future, but it's a divine diagnosis of the present. Prophes prophetic words sometimes give us a picture of what's going to happen in the future, but sometimes they give us clarity on what's happening in the present. This is the genre of the writing. It's a revelation. It's this kind of story. Um, John is the disciple who Jesus loved. Um, he's old now, and he has outlived all the other apostles. So he is the voice in the church at this point. He's the one that's left. He is the definitive, authoritative voice that's left in the church at this time. The book of the martyrs tells us that he had been boiled alive and did not die before he writes this letter. I don't know how that happens. It sounds awful. But this is what had happened to him. So he's on this island. He's writing to this churches because he loves them. He has this revelation. He has this dream. He has this vision. The date is around 94 to 96 AD. There's deep persecution happening in the church. I know, I know sometimes we talk about persecution of Christians in America. This doesn't compare to what we're talking about here. Nero kicked this off. When Nero became the emperor, he ratcheted up the pressure against Christians. Nero decided that if you were a Christian and you were accused of a crime, what he would do is he would douse you in oil, set you on the side of the road, and set you on fire. That was what was happening to Christians at that time. Nero's the one who first started putting Christians in the arena where they would fight lions for sport. So instead of going to the Atlanta United game, this is what Rome was watching and experiencing and cheering for and celebrating. In AD 70, Jerusalem was destroyed. 
In the same year that Jerusalem was destroyed, Peter, Paul, and Timothy were all publicly executed. This is happening 20 years later. So these, these are like, imagine this. These are the three leading voices in the church. All of them executed publicly in the same year, around the same time. And so John is experiencing all of this. The church is experiencing all of this. Domitian comes along, and Domitian is nastier than Nero. He's worse than him. What Domitian says is not only are we going to punish Christians and persecute them and kill them and torture them and feed them to the lions, all of those kinds of things. Domitian also says, I'm God, and you need to worship me. And if you're unwilling to worship me, then you're going to be executed immediately. So if you won't renounce your faith... What he would do, Domitian would have anybody who had the means to do it, had to come to Rome, had to walk into the city, had to go to this pool and drop salt in a pool and say, Caesar is the only Lord. All of this is a response to what the Christians are saying. Remember what the Christians are saying? Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Lord. And if any Christian would not renounce his faith, he would be tortured. This is where the church is at this time. Right? 80, 70 to 80, 90. This is the church history of what's going on in this moment. You know want to know what's crazy about it? The church in this time is growing. More people are coming to the church. More people are coming to faith. More people are being baptized. More people are publicly saying Jesus is Lord. We had a stinking mass controversy and we lost 40% of our church. We had to put some things on our face. And 40% of the people who attended this church, right here, are gone. These are people that are being murdered for their faith. And they're saying, Jesus is Lord, and I don't care what happens to me. I'm team Jesus, and I'm willing to fight for it for the rest of my life, and I will battle for that. And I'm not trying to stir the pot. I'm just thinking, Jesus has a lot of amazing things to say to his church. He had a lot of amazing things that were important for them to hear right then, right in that moment. Because when in the middle of persecution, you need to know that Jesus is Lord. You need to know that he's risen. He's risen. You need to know that you're winning. You need to know that he's on your side. You need to know that his presence brings peace. You need to know that there's a world that's greater than this world. But Jesus also has amazing messages for the church today if we would just listen. If we would just slow down and take some time to be in his presence. Eugene Peterson is one of my favorite writers of all time. And he, he, he wrote a, a bunch of letters to his son that he published about two years ago. And, and Eugene Peterson's like this father figure to every young pastor in the church. And he's been this voice of reason and this voice of pastoring and this beautiful voice to so many pastors around the country. And so when they published these letters, every pastor bought them. Because they were like, I, I, they were like, whatever he's saying, I want more of that. And I was reading it, and, and one, of the, one of the letters he writes to his son Eric, he says this. He's telling a story about going down to the middle of the Bible Belt in Texas and preaching. And he says, I was preaching, and I was here, and I felt so uncomfortable the whole time. And he said, it was so weird, because everybody agreed with me. Everybody said Amen. Everybody listened to me. Everybody was there. But here's what he said. They seem to lack a certain depth or a certain perspective that doesn't seem to count the cost. 
He said, everything felt cheap to me. And I wonder if the American church is missing the point. The audience for him is the seven churches. These are the lampstands, is what Revelation calls them. The places where light is going out into the world. These are the, are the places. And the subject starts right there at verse 1. The subject is Jesus. John Stott said this. He said, a church with its back to the wall fighting for survival needs more than moral exhortation and humble encouragement. It must see Christ. This whole book concerns him. And nobody can read it without gaining a clearer view of him. This is a huge deal for us. This is how we interpret the Bible. We believe that we read the Bible looking for Jesus. We read the Bible looking for Jesus. We don't read the Bible looking for like a tweet or a pithy quote or a cliche that we can throw out there this week. We don't read it for like a, a word of wisdom, like, uh, what is it, chicken soup for the soul. We're, we're not, that's not why we read the Bible. We actually read the Bible believing that the living God is in these pages and wants to speak to us today. I don't know if you've ever met a person who has a cliche for every situation, but doesn't seem to have any wisdom. Are you with me? Like, like the people who are like, well, when God closes one door, he opens a window. <laughs> You're all, you're all thinking about the very specific person right now. You're never more safe than when you're in God's will. And they got a smiley, pithy statement for everything. But you wonder if they really know what's going on. Have you ever met somebody who knows the Bible, but for some reason doesn't know Jesus at all? Whew, those people are hard. Sometimes we know about him, but we don't know him. And so we read the Bible looking for Jesus. We see him working then, and we know that he's working now. We learn how he's worked in the past so that we can discover how he might be working now. We see his character in the way he deals with his people then, and we expect the same character today. We look at what he asks others to do, knowing that he may be asking us to do the same. And when we read the Bible, when we open the word, when we preach, we pray that Jesus, the living God, would reveal himself to us every time. It's always about him. It's always about him. And so why are we studying these passages? We're studying these passages because I think we need a good look at Jesus. And then secondly, the hard part, we actually need to allow Jesus to take a good look at us. Because it's not that we just want to look at Jesus. It's actually that we actually want to allow Jesus to search our hearts and know us. It's that we want Jesus to look at our church and say, these are the things that I would change. These are the things that I love. Because all of these letters for the church are filled with this moment of critique. Where, where, where there's this critique of what the church is doing. And some of it is hard. Like it's difficult words that we're going to pull out over the next seven weeks. It's challenging, challenging stuff. And the question isn't, are we going to listen to it? The question is, are we going to obey it? And so we get these hard words, but there's also this affirmation. This is what I see in you. This is what I love about you. All of these kinds of things. And so we live in these places, hoping to be a lampstand here in Marietta, hoping to be one of these churches that carries the light further and beyond where we're at. And we hope that the words of Jesus actually impact the way that we live. On November 4th, 1956, Martin Luther King Jr. delivered to Dexter Avenue Baptist Church his letters to the American church. It's a brilliant sermon. You can go look it up online and read the whole thing. I obviously can't do that today. He's a much better preacher than I am. 
Here's, here, here's, here's some of what he said in this. What he was trying to do was write a Pauline-type letter to the church. He was trying to imagine, if I were writing a letter to the American church, what would I say? And he talked about segregation, and he talked about racism, and he talked about capitalism, and he talked about usury, and he talked about politics, and he talked about Jesus. But at the end of it, he says this, I think I have an answer, America. I think that I've discovered that the highest good is love. This principle stands at the center of the cosmos. As John says, God is love. He who loves is a participant in being with God. He who hates does not know him. So American Christians, sometimes I think we've mastered the intricacies of the, of the English language. We possess the eloquence of articulate speech. But even if you speak in the tongues of man and angels and have not love, we become a sounding brass or clanging cymbal. You may have the gift of prophecy or understanding of all mysteries. You may be able to break into the storehouse of nature and bring out many insights that men have never dreamed were there. You may ascend to the heights of academic achievement so that you may have all knowledge. You may boast of your great institutions of learning, and you may have a boundless extent to your knowledge and to your degrees. But all of this amounts to absolutely nothing devoid of love. So the greatest of all virtues is love. It's here that we find the true meaning of the Christian faith. This is at the bottom of the meaning of the cross. That's the letter that Dr. King wrote to the church in 1956. And I wonder, and this is what I've wondered all week, what's the letter that Jesus would send us? What's the critique that he would give us? What's the encouragement he would walk us in? Because Jesus never said to any church, they will know us by our opinions. <laughs> he never said to any church, they will know us by our theology. He never said they will know us by our politics. He said they'll know us by our love. And if we had, uh, if we had to write a letter from Jesus to our church, what would we include in that? Actually, it's a great homework assignment over the next eight weeks. I'd love to get a bunch of letters from everybody. Just hand them to me and say, this is from Jesus to Grace Marietta. Let's, let's work. Let's, let's listen. Let's pay attention. Let's ask the questions. What's Jesus asking us? What's he requiring of us? Because the question isn't, will we listen to Jesus? It's, will we obey him? The church has often been faithful to listen and failed in obedience. And Jesus talks about the, the sheep hearing his voice. Right? There's a powerful part of just hearing. Jesus wants us to hear. He wants us to know his voice. He wants us to be able to discern his voice. He wants us to recognize his voice. He wants us to know that his voice is good. He wants us to know that when he asks us to do something, it's good for us to go and do that and pursue those things. But bigger than that, he also wants us to obey. In John chapter 14, verse 15, it says, If you love me, you will what? You'll keep my commandments. That love is always tied to obedience. And so if we want to love Jesus, we can't just show up every week and listen to him, but decide not to obey anything that he says. We can't just enter into a worship service every week and say, I'm going to take that stuff and that was pretty good, but I'm going to throw out all of this stuff because I'm not interested in that. And I'm going to pick and choose what I do. When my kids were little, we would often talk to them about how love and obedience are combined. Kids, do you hear me? Do you hear what I'm asking you to do? I've asked you 15 times to do this. I need you to love me now by obeying. Obedience is always tied 
to love. And I wonder if we've reached a point in the American church where obedience has become optional. I, I had a sense this week of the Lord leading me to reach out to somebody and to serve them. I was just, I was praying. It was in my normal day. But I knew that if I reached out to this person and tried to serve them, it was going to be an ordeal. Like, it was just going to be a long experience. I'm an introvert, and there's people that are talkers. And, and I knew, like, if I call this person and offer to do this, I'm in it for the day. And I had my day planned. Like, well, I've been out of town three weeks in a row, and I had to get this message ready, and I had some meetings and some calls and all of these things. And so even though I heard what I believe was the voice of Jesus, I was tired. And I didn't really want to listen. I didn't really want to obey. And so I didn't do it. I don't know what the consequences of that are. Maybe somebody else did it. God's got lots of other people who can ask to do that too. I don't know what happened, but, but here's what I read when I read these, this book of Revelation. In this time, when the church is under this much persecution, and there is this much struggle going on in the church at any given moment, I don't think they had the option not to listen to Jesus. I think the stakes were just so much higher. Like the stakes for me in that moment was like, well, maybe somebody doesn't get served today. The stakes for them are life and death in those moments. I'm honestly, I'm not convinced right now that if Jesus floated down from the parking lot right now and came and took the microphone from me, he wouldn't even need a microphone. He's got a loud voice. Right? And Jesus floated down and he was like, Marietta, here's the things that I want to say to you. Grace Marietta, here's my message to you. I'm not sure that two days later we would be like, that was really cool what Jesus said. Remember when Jesus did that thing? He showed up, he floated down, he, he caught up, he interrupted Ben, and Ben was droning on anyway. And, 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 and at that point, there was this moment, and it was so amazing and so powerful, but I, I'm not really going to do what he said. I got a lot going on today. Is that Friends Reunion? Is it back on? All right, I heard Chandler slurs his words a little bit. Like, I got to check that out. NBA playoffs, Hawks are up 2-1. Like, there was a little intensity going on with the Knicks fans. Like, I want Trey to hit every shot it takes for the rest of his life, as long as he plays with the Hawks. I wonder if we're too distracted to obey. I wonder if we're too wealthy to obey. I wonder if we're too comfortable to obey. I wonder if we're too selfish to obey. But I know this. The church in America has a problem with obedience. We have great talk. And a really bad walk. Lastly, I think Jesus is the answer. And Jesus is the victor for our churches. And I think that's really important whether we're in a time of persecution or whether we're in a regular moment. Revelation chapter 1 verse 7 says, Behold, he is coming in the clouds and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. Verse 8, I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and was and is to come, the Almighty. I am the first and I am the last. I am the beginning and I am the end. 
I am the first word and I am the last word. And I don't know about you, but that's incredibly good news to me. I don't have to be the first word or the last word. I don't have to be the beginning or the end. I'm going to die. Somebody else is going to be the pastor of this church. All whole generation of people are going to go, and the name of Jesus is still going to be proclaimed. It doesn't matter what kind of pandemic happens. It doesn't matter what kind of disagreements happen. It doesn't matter who the president is. It doesn't matter whether we like masks or don't like masks or like hot or like cold or like inside or like outside. It doesn't matter what we like at all. In fact, 100 years from now, everything that we're doing right now in this place will be outdated. People will laugh at the songs that we were singing. They will mock them. Right? Every methodology that the church has ever had has been shifted and changed and transformed. Every preference that people have ever had in the church has been shifted and changed and transformed. The one thing that has not changed is that Jesus is Lord. Amen. That he's good. That he's with us. That he's for us. And that he's still speaking to his church. About uh, 10, maybe 12 years ago, I, I got invited to a missions trip to Kenya. And we went on this amazing missions experience. And, and at the end of it, we went on this four-day safari. And my, my buddy who was with me, he was like, hey, kick the driver who looks the craziest. That'll be the most fun. And so you've got to find the driver who looks like he's not going to follow the rules. And so me and my buddy are like, pick the crazy one. Well, I don't know which one's the crazy one. But this one dude had this necklace, and on this necklace were all these lion teeth. I was like, I'm picking the lion teeth guy. Like, I don't know what else is going on, but I think the guy, either he bought a fake, either he bought that from somebody thinking, I'm going to wear the lion tooth necklace, which I can respect. <laughs> or he met that lion himself, which I really respect, right? So we start going out, we watch these videos, and these videos are like, don't ever get out of the truck, don't instigate the animals, don't throw food to them, all these things. And we get in the, we get in the van, uh, the Jeep, it's like this open-ended Jeep, there's no top to it at all. And we get out in the middle of this field, and we've been going for about an hour, we've, we've become really good friends with Lion Teeth Man. Uh, he told us that he and his brother killed the lion, which is pretty cool. And... Uh, and there's this giraffe in the field. And he's like, go get that giraffe. And we're like, we just watched like a bunch of videos that told us the lions will eat us if we get out of the, of the van. And he's like, ah, go do it. <laughs> and so we jump out of this Jeep, me and my buddies, and we're like sprinting towards this giraffe. And I don't know if you guys have ever been real close to, giraffes are really big. And apparently they're not really intimidated by a human running at them. Because the giraffe did not move. The giraffe looked down on us like, what is this? What is, what are you doing? I don't even know. Or maybe this giraffe, maybe this driver does this every day, so the giraffe's just used to it. I, I don't know. But the giraffe just looked at us. We get back and we're driving around. The next day, we pull up to this spot. And from like where I am to Grant and, and John right here, there is a pack of lions. There's like six of them. And this dude who's hysterical... He, he pulls up, and he starts revving the engine of the Jeep. We're this close. And I, I don't know if you've ever seen a house cat that gets a little angry. Like the hair on its back goes up. The hair on these lions' back. Get, and they were not sleeping anymore when he started revving the engine. They're all standing up. And then our dude goes like this with the key and holds it up in the air and just starts laughing. <laughs> He was the worst. I'm sure he's gotten someone killed and he's been fine. 
but he's doing all these things. It's this crazy thing. And we got done with that trip, and I came home, and, and you know what's ruined for me for the rest of my life? I can never go to a zoo again. I'm serious. I can't. I, I watched this 400-pound gorilla in a cage that looks sleepy and tired. I watched this lion that's just laying there waiting for them to feed him something. And I wonder if the American church does to people what the zoo does to animals. I don't think it's intentional. I think it's well-intentioned. But I wonder if our intentions of helping people, we actually hurt people. I wonder if we try and remove all the danger, we try and remove all the risks, we, we attempt to tame people and keep them safe, and we forget that Jesus didn't die to keep us safe. I wonder if we played it safe for so long that we're just bored and fat and tired. Jesus said, I'm sending you out like sheep among wolves. The sheep don't win that fight. He said, be shrewd as snakes and be innocent as doves. He said, in this world, you will have trouble. He didn't say, circle up and let's keep our kids safe from the world. He didn't say circle up and just gather together on Sundays and have a little nice time together and then at the end of it, just go and do whatever you want. Like we believe that what we're doing in here actually should change lives. That it should actually transform the lives of every person within the sound of my voice and it should actually transform the lives of our community. That the things that we do in this place are not to domesticate us and to keep us safe and to keep us quiet, but the message of revelation is there is a courageous church that can change the world with Jesus as their answer and with Jesus as their victor. And the question for the American church today is will we be courageous? It's will we be the ones who stand up and follow the weight of Jesus? I know you hear me out there. So I'm going to pray that we can become that church. Heavenly Father, We want to play church. We don't want to gather together for the sake of our preferences. We don't want to argue over petty things that do not matter to your kingdom. We want to be the church of Jesus Christ. It goes out into all the world and makes a difference. And so I pray that over the next few weeks you would inspire us that you would encourage us. And I pray that in the exact same way that you gave a revelation to John about these churches in Asia Minor, that you would give us revelations about our church. I pray that you would give us a vision for the ways we need to be transformed and changed. I pray that you would give us a vision of the things that you're pleased that we're doing right now and want to encourage us in. But most of all, I pray that you would give us a vision of what the church completely submitted and surrendered to Jesus looks like. And so guide us and direct us. Lead us to where you want us to go. So you're going to be praying.